Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the newest CISA leader is no stranger to the federal government. She was the executive director of the President's Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity, which was Barack Obama's initiative to sort of tee up cybersecurity for the next president. A former member's advice for the Technology Modernization Fund board. I'm not saying they're going to get all billion dollars out the door. Obviously not, right? But my sense is they probably need three or four awards to uh, to talk about before the end of the FY. And a high-tech handoff at the Defense Digital Service. We're transferring and some, some sensing capabilities and to sense small drones, as well as the user interface to view those drones, look at historical and real-time analysis. It's Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at four o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Office of Personnel Management will start a working capital fund for IT upgrades if Congress approves it. OPM Director Kieran Ahuja says the agency will develop a, quote, enterprise-wide IT requirements and cost analysis for Congress to consider. Ahuja says the agency's building recommendations the National Academy of Public Administration made into the agency's strategic plan for the next four fiscal years. The Defense Innovation Unit will offer venture funding to companies to counter investments from China. DIU Director Mike Brown says the National Security Innovation Capital Program will fund technology both the Defense Department and the private sector can use. Mike Brown will tell you more on Friday's Daily Scoop podcast. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has a new chief of staff. Tim Starks is senior editor at CyberScoop. He's writing about the new hire. Tim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Kirsten Tott is a familiar face, isn't she? Very much so. She um, has a good reputation in the in the area of cybersecurity. Uh, she's had a, at least 20 years working on it. Um, most recently, you might have heard about her doing uh, work for the Cyber Readiness Institute, where she's been uh, the head of that organization. It's a nonprofit that tries to help small businesses with cybersecurity. But I think her 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 bigger claim to to fame and well knownness, if you will, is that she was the executive director of uh, the President's Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity, which was uh, Barack Obama's initiative to sort of tee up cybersecurity for the next president. One of the recommendations you report on on CyberScoop is that that organization released its final report in 2016, and one of its recommendations was creating something just like CISA inside DHS. Yeah, it's kind of funny, right? Like Almost like she was lobbying for her future job. No. <laughs> And here's another here's another funny layer to that. Um, she also was on the staff of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee when they were uh, putting together the, the law that would create DHS. And she helped write the cybersecurity section of that law. So there is kind of a pattern of her her cre- creating or advocating for the creating of these things. And now she's ended up at both at both places because, of course, this is inside DHS. This is just the latest hire at CISA. Also, CISA is fleshing out. Uh, getting the people into place that it needs to fulfill its mission, it sounds like. Yes. You know, they they have finally gotten full leadership as of as of July uh, with Jenny Easterly as sister director. But the other thing that's been going on is uh, they've been trying to fill just a vast number of cybersecurity vacancies. Um, as of July, uh, they had estimated that they had 2,000 cybersecurity vacancies. And they had done a, a, a higher, hiring initiative to bring on uh, 300 people that extended job offers to, to 500 more, but that you know that even even as of this year when they apparently have have hired uh, more people 
in the first six months than, than in the last two years combined, they still have 2,000 people they need to find. So it's a, it's a, it, they're hurrying, they're getting, they're making progress. They've been, you know, they've, they've had an initiative to make it so that they may hire people more easily and, and more swiftly. Uh, but they've still got a very long way to go. It's a very challenging problem in the cybersecurity world in general, but uh, in, at, at the agency that's in charge of cybersecurity, they clearly need cybersecurity pros. The full story on Kirsten Tott joining CISA as chief of staff is up on cyberscoop.com right now. Tim Starks, thanks very much. Thank you. Coming later on the Daily Scoop podcast, advice for spending a billion dollars in the Technology Modernization Fund. The former head of the Federal Acquisition Service, Alan Thomas, will be here. First, though, the House Armed Services Committee's mark of the National Defense Authorization Act this year includes a block of 36 amendments about information technology at the Pentagon. That block includes provisions for cyber, innovation, and R&D. Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, U.S. Navy, retired as former Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Navy. She's author of Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. Donnell, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. What do you think the significance is of this one block, 36 amendments that all went into the NDA on the House side, at least, en masse? Welcome. I appreciate the opportunity to join you on your new program here. It's an honor, definitely. So I think some of the significance is, I mean, it's a, it's a raise the top line on the NDA from last year by over almost $24 billion with a B dollars. Um, so that's a lot. And, and what uh, Chairman Adam Smith, you know, of the Hass was really focusing on is, you know, how do we transform where we're going? You know, focus on tech and innovation. Um, so it, they're not looking at, hey, let's buy more legacy platforms. Let's buy more, more of what we got. They're looking, okay, how are we going to transform operations, war fighting, influence operations, information operations? How are we going to transform that? And what do we need to do to get there? And, you know, they really focused in the Hask Subcommittee on uh, Cyber Innovation Technology and Information Systems, which is called CITI. They really focused in on about six different things. One, cybersecurity, which you could, you know, very well imagine would be on the list. That's a hot button for everybody. 5G, another uh, interesting uh, technology for not just the military, but uh, um, uh, commercial world. AI, uh, electronics and spectrum operations, uh, which is super important to the military. Uh, software, micro, uh, microelectronics and uh, information operations. You know, how do you do the kind of influence operations that we see other nation states, uh, peers uh, in the great power competition like China and Russia going after. Um, because if you can achieve an effect uh, through information operations without having to fire a bullet, that's that's a win, right? And so how, do you, how can we do that better than we have in the past? Where are we doing well in any of those six areas in your view, Donnell? And where are we trying to play catch up at least to the cap uh, capacities that we would like to have? Well, what I would say is some of these technologies are even, you know, evolving and nascent in commercial industry. So, you know, we're evolving as they're evolving. And as it, the more we stick to open standards, compliant kind of implementations of these technologies, and, and remember, it's then we'll be better off. And remember, it's not just the technology, Francis. You have to take the technology, combine it with process change and people, right? And maybe policy. Because if you don't do that whole uh, holistic approach to it, you can implement technology all day long and you're just paving the cow path. You know, you're just kind of redoing something. So where I see that we might be doing well is, you know, the, the DOD started a couple of years, just about three years ago, did some 5G pilots, you know, um, the Navy did one recently with Smart Warehouse with uh, Mar 4 Logcom, where they were doing um, uh, logistics readiness kind of uh, 
uh, things with the uh, 5G. Uh, the uh, 86th Comm Squadron for the Air Force uh, activated a mobile cell phone truck with 5G in Ramstein, Germany, just recently on the 3rd of September. And then the Army, with their DEVCOM Ground Vehicle Systems Center, was testing the aerial footprint for a 5G network. So each of the services have done some pretty creative work with 5G. The one thing I would say, though, is I would really like to see the military move into the light portion of the spectrum. You know, our adversaries are going to be able to pick up even the smallest radio frequency uh, emissions in the future. And if we don't start doing more with Li-Fi, you know, light fidelity for local area networks and, and laser comms for wide area networks, I think we're going to get our lunch handed to us at some point. All right. I don't know anything about anything about what you just said, but it strikes me that the capabilities that I do understand that are related to what you just talked about are all things that underpin Joint All Domain Command and Control. Am I on the right track to now? Yeah, you absolutely are. Um, so JADC2 isn't a program or anything like that. It's a framework for how we achieve better interoperability or the ability to talk between systems and systems to humans. Um, and, and how we do that, not just with our own systems in the U.S. military, but with coalition partners, because, you know, we're never going to fight a war by ourselves. And we have to have that kind of interoperability with uh, uh, coalition partners. And for JADC2 to be successful, it's not just, you know, kind of data that you might think about that you and I might see on a web browser or maybe an application we use, but it's also machine to machine data. What goes to our operational technology, like our navigation and propulsion systems, what goes to our combat systems and weapon systems and radar systems, and how do we tie that sensor to shooter all the way in an interoperable way. And, and each of the services has their own implementation of that JADC2. Navy's is called uh, Project Overmatch, Army's is Project Convergence, and the Air Force has got uh, Advanced battle, battle Management System. And so all of those, while they'll work in their service, they have to be very, very careful to keep to open standards so that those data are interchangeable and you know, can, you can apply the AI and ML and all the things we want to do in the future there. Is there a problem with the idea that each of the services is developing its own uh, of those programs that you just mentioned, and then they're merging them together to create JADC2? Is that maybe backwards from what would have been ideal? I know it's too late. We're down the path now, but is that where we are? Yeah, I think it's it's yeah, incredibly frustrating for anybody who understands how data works that the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, and particularly the Joint Community are loath to standardize on any kind of data formats. They're like, hey, you know, it's a dog's breakfast, bring whatever you want, we'll figure out interfaces. Well, you know, it's sort of like, um, I equate it to, you know, I have electricity coming out of my wall, Francis, right? And granted, I could have like 50 different adapters, in, you know, that, that allow different programs and different uh, applications or whatever I might have, you know, like a light or whatever, to use something different. But thank God I don't. Thank God I, there's a prong that has been standardized in the United States, anyway, that I could plug in electric anywhere. I don't have to worry about it. You know, that solves a whole host of problems. I don't have to carry around a bag full of adapters, but we're forcing everybody to carry around a bag full of APIs, uh, adapters, if you will, uh, to, to have data talk to each other. And the problem becomes every time you change something, you got to make sure that adapter works. It just makes it more complicated because, frankly, it's a hard thing to force standardization on some formats of data. Um, it's a leadership problem, frankly. We need to do it, and we are loath to do it in the military. Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett, U.S. Navy retired, is former Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Navy. She's author of Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. You can read more about her book at fedscoop.com. Coming on today's Daily Scoop podcast. 
a high-tech handoff at the top of the Defense Department. The head of the Defense Digital Service will tell you why she thinks it's a big deal. That's coming up. The Daily Scoop podcast lineup is always available ahead of time on Twitter. You can follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod on Twitter. The Technology Modernization Fund Board is sorting through more than 100 proposals to draw on the billion-plus dollars the fund got from the American Rescue Plan Act. Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Martirana calls that money a, quote, down payment on IT modernization. Alan Thomas is Chief Executive Officer of IntelliBridge. He's former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration and a former member of the TMF board. Alan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write that you believe the fund is under pressure to make some investments by the end of the fiscal year. Why so? Great to be with you, Francis. Glad you're back in the saddle. Yeah, look, I think, it, I mean, a, a short history lesson is in order here, right? If you remember, the TMF got a, a billion dollar infusion as part of the uh, Recovery Act. And, uh, you know, they've they put out a call for proposals uh, back in the spring. All those proposals were due, uh, I think, June 2nd, right? They got, I don't know, I think I'm, I'm some, something like 80 plus proposals for more than $2 billion in requested funding. Uh, and they had some focus areas, you know, cyber, high-profile high uh, IT system modernization, cr you know, cross-government initiatives. So I think you know we're, you're coming up on the 100-day mark in terms of when the when the proposals actually came in the door. So my my sense is uh, that you know it's time probably to to make to make a few awards, right? Uh, I, I remember from my time on the TMF, um, working under Suzette Kent's leadership there. Uh, you know, Congress was always interested in, hey, what are you doing with that money we gave you? And 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 we had a lot less money than, than this group has. Right. So, uh, again, my, my sense is given the pressing nature of the um, of some of the uh, issues they're trying to tackle, probably pe people are probably looking to see, hey, w what are you doing here at the end of the at, at the end of the FY? I'm not saying they're going to get all billion dollars out the door. Obviously not. Right. But my sense is they probably need three or four awards to uh, to talk about before the end of the FY. Suzette was on the Daily Scoop podcast with me yesterday, and I asked her if she was jealous about all the money that's in there now as a result of the American Rescue Plan Act, and she said, yeah, a little bit. I can understand that. Do you have a sense of what you think among those priority areas that the administration listed, what you think some of these awards uh, could be? Because if you're talking to end of the fiscal year, that's about that's within the next two weeks, Alan. Yeah. I think I think cyber uh, is, is at the top of the list, right? I mean, you think about the Solar Winds hack uh, and just you know ransomware attacks, right? I mean, that feels uh, it's it's very it's very very top of mind. And my sense is, uh, folks in government, right, probably uh, that, that that's probably an area where they received a, a number of proposals where you could really put the money to work quickly and uh, and show and sh show some results, right? Things like cross-government services and infrastructure, which is one of the other uh, one of the other focus areas they had, is obviously important. But those feel like uh, long, you know, kind of longer-term, longer payback projects. And my guess is, and this is just a guess, is that with the first with the first awards, they're going to want to kind of hit high-profile things that it's very clear where the dollars are going, and what the benefits are, and you know, be able to within say 12 months or so go back and say look we made investments in you know the, these projects at these agencies and we got and, he, and he, here's the benefit you anticipated kind of my next question which was should we expect these to be kind of quick hitters the things that somebody can say at an agency in 
12 to 18 months, we won or we, we posted a win to demonstrate the viability of the fund and to demonstrate the viability of that agency for future awards and all those kinds of things? Or should we expect to maybe see, because of the amount of the money, more complex, longer-term projects that cost more money and require a longer lead time to really see success? I think you can do both, right? And I think uh, savvy folks in government, right, hopefully pitched uh, pitched ideas that that were both. I think the viability of the fund was established, right? I mean, that I think that that box has been uh, has been checked. I think there's a question mark about whether the fund can operate at the scale that it's that it's going to be asked to operate at here. And there, you know, there's some new new folks coming in the mix there. But I think in terms of you know, kind of a quick win versus a lo- longer term payback. Again, I think you can do both, right? Break take any big project and break it into break it into chunks. Always important, I think, to have a, you know, kind of some low hanging fruit that within 12 months you can show uh, that you can show benefit, right? But but then also be able to say, hey, and we've got this longer term vision, right? And the, you know, the, the bigger set of dollars are going going towards that. Again, I think savvy, savvy PMs are sort of uh, can, can have their cake and eat it too there. I'm going to put you back on the board for a second. What would make you argue for a project a proposal on behalf of an agency to the other members of the board what are the components of a proposal that make you go we really ought to do this one so uh look i i have always tried to be uh the voice of reason there right? so we had plenty of technologists on the board um you know which is great in terms of kind of evaluating the technology i i like to see uh hey is is the is the management team at the agency really lined up behind this initiative Right to be able to drive it through to success. Is there a viable acquisition strategy? Many, many of the proposals, right, will come forward to, hey, we're you know we're gonna we're gonna put an RFP out. We're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna do that. We're gonna get industry expertise. Okay, great. You know what contract vehicle are using? What what's the time frame? How about the contracting shop? Are they on board? Do you have the right resources there lined up? Right. Some of these sort of nuts and bolts kinds of things that you need to actually make sure. That a, that a project can get off the ground and be successful. Sometimes, you know, people have the best idea, but they but they but they haven't. You know, it's like a, it's like an, a beautiful house, but it, but it, but not a great foundation. Like mm, I don't want to invest in that. Particularly early on, when we talked about projects, you know, when when we were trying to establish the viability of the fund, though, that seemed really really important to me, right? So I, I I tend to kind of look at those foundational sort of aspects of the project. I'm interested in the technology too. But uh, but 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 again, uh, you know, what, what, why do things like this in government fail? They often fail for very mundane reasons. Right. And I do think it's incumbent upon the board to think about those things as well as ooh, what's the cool technology thing that's happening. You use the word there, too, that I think is important to consider when we're looking at these TMF awards, Alan. That's invest versus the word appropriate. This is not Congress saying you need X dollars to do this thing that's going to take two, three, four, five years. And we're going to give you this piece of it to do it this year. This is the TMF board peers, basically, of the people submitting these proposals saying we have this money and we don't have all the money in the world. So we want to make sure we we invest in things that are going to give us our money back so we can go invest in other things. Right. That, that That's correct. I mean, I would note that the uh, you know, that the repayment rules have been, uh, quote unquote, relaxed. Right. Uh, there's a you know, full repayment, partial repayment and so-called minimal repayment. Um, but but uh, which I'm sure led to more proposals from the agencies. Uh, but as you say, look, the, the purpose of the fund is to revolve, that is to get some dollars back in so that you can continue to make investments over over time. 
even with a billion dollars, which look is a lot for the for the average American. It's not actually a lot when you're trying to tackle IT modernization across the federal government, right? You're going to need a lot more than that. So the the ability on some level to pay the fund back and to allow uh, the board to continue to make these sort of investments in the future is is important. And, and I hope uh, and I, I'm sure it is still a consideration as they're as they're looking at projects. Quick final thought, Alan. Does it bother you that House Appropriations only put up 50 million in their uh, bill for the TMF this year, or does that billion get the fund far enough to be able to make some significant progress in the next year or so? I think I think look, the the billion gets it pretty pretty far, and if you have some component of repayment in there. That's you know that that's a pretty nice down payment that should that should yield sort of a, a dividend back into the fund, if you will. Would it have been nice to see maybe more than fifty million? Uh, sure, and I did note that there's a huge uh, appropriation for the FCSF, the Federal Citizen Services Fund, right? I'd rather see that money go into the TMF than go into an appropriated account like FCSF. Um, but but uh, you know I think that that's sort of how the 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 House kind of laid laid their priorities down. If you're smart with the billion, you should you should have a, a nice revolver there that uh, that lasts for lasts for a long time. Former Fast Commissioner and TMF board member Alan Thomas. You can read more about the TMF cash infusion at FedScoop.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on tomorrow's show, the Data Deluge at the National Science Foundation. The CIO there is Dorothy Aronson. She's a 2021 FedScoop 50 nominee, and you'll hear from her on Wednesday's Daily Scoop podcast. It debuts at 4 p.m. on Wednesday at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Defense Digital Service will transfer unmanned aerial systems detection technology to the Air Force Research Lab by the end of this month. DDS and the lab signed a memorandum of understanding about the transfer in April. Katie Olson's acting director of the Defense Digital Service. She's a 2021 FedScoop 50 nominee, too. Katie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the significance in your mind of this transfer of this technology? Is it the transfer itself? Is it a precedent that DDS and the service is set or something else? Welcome. Hi, Francis. It's, it's good to, uh, to chat with you again in your new role. Thanks so much for, for having me on. So uh, to your question, I think it's, it's both. Um, it's important. The capability that we're transferring to AFRL is important, um, but I also think it, it speaks to the DDS model of responding to a crisis, building technology, and then working with a partner um, to transfer, transfer the capability for ongoing evolution. Um, so the the technical, um, you know, the, the actual capability that we're that we're transferring. Um, is sort of better monitoring um, of the counter U.S. space. Um, so we're transferring um, some some sensing capabilities um, to sense small drones, as well as the user interface to view those drones, look at historical and real-time analysis. Um, we've had a long history of successful collaboration with AFRL, um, particularly in the counter, uh, counter U.S. Or, or counter small drone space. Um, and transferring these capabilities um, will enable them to enable AFRL to continue to evolve these capabilities um, and continue to support and modernize the, the DOD defensive posture. You said you have a long history of collaboration, successful collaboration with AFRL. What makes for successful collaboration between you and some other partner across the department, Katie? 
I think that the the most important piece is having two forward-leaning DOD organizations that are willing to come together to to set aside history, um, break down barriers, and decide what we want to accomplish together uh, and how we can use our collective strengths. Um, so in this case, uh, you know, DDS responded to the you know the increasing um, counter or increasing small UAS UAV threat. Um, we built a capability very quickly um, to be able to to sense small drones, um, as well as the the accompanying user interface. Uh, but AFRL is, is really well positioned as a research lab um, to continue to refine the technology. And I think we you know we both sort of set aside um, you know past ways of doing things, past um, past technologies that the department was using, um, set some goals for what we wanted to be able to accomplish, um, and to plan from the beginning what the what the transition or handoff would look like. My colleague Billy Mitchell's story on fedscoop.com reports Air Force Research Lab earlier this year issued a request for proposals for a $490 million contract looking for businesses that can help prototype counter SUAS technology. What's DDS's role in helping a branch or a part of the service get to that point where they can say, all right, we now know exactly what we need based on the relationship that we have with DDS to be able to go to the market and buy some Mm -hmm. of this? Well, it's it's just exactly that. Um, before spending um, before spending such such large sums of money, um, you want to have a good sense of of what works and what doesn't. Um, and you know, we we believe you know, especially at DDS, the in the the power of the pilot, uh, starting small, thinking about um, you know what are the the what are the challenges, what are the needs that we're seeing, uh, where is the threat, for example. Um, you know, so it, it helps AFRL for, um, you know, to, to be able to point to the work that DDS has done, um, ironing out the sort of sensing capabilities that are needed, how operators need to view the information before then going to the market and saying, this is, you know, at a basic level, here's the sort of sensing and UI capabilities that are needed. Um, here might, here are some um, sort of extraneous situations or um, some more far-flung use cases that, you know, industry can can support knowing that we um, knowing how to sort of handle the basics. How do you and your partner know when a program is ready to transfer? What are the indicators that you look for to know we've done all we can do with this at DDS and it's ready to go to the other place? Well, it's it's part capacity of the other organization uh, and and partly good planning and and the two sort of work in tandem. Um, so when we are preparing to transfer. Um, transfer a product to the other organization. One, you know, we're increasingly working at, at DDS to have that plan in place from the very launch of a, of a product development. Um, you know, we don't want to get too far down the path um, of developing something without knowing who the, the long-term owner might be. You know, sometimes that, um, sometimes we build things in an emergency where having the transition partner already in place uh, might not be possible. Uh, so for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we were contacted by the Navy to create a COVID tracking tool uh, to track the uh, to allow people aboard ships to self-report symptoms, so that the the Navy could then isolate those people, um, you know, keep them in quarantine essentially uh, to prevent the, a, a wider outbreak. Um, and that you know, we needed to do that immediately without an eye towards transition because we were solving a crisis. Um, but once, um, you know, once we had the tool up and running and it, it was uh, scaled to a number of, of ships and bases, you know, we immediately started to think about what are the, the sort of post-crisis 
use cases? Um, could it be used for you know additional biometric tracking, for example, or additional sort of health tracking or um, you know, the system of, is it a tool, just a basic communication tool, for example, for the Navy or the Air Force and the Army um, to check in um, with their, their personnel using uh, mobile devices? So I think, you know, we, we start to identify the, the transition partner as soon as is appropriate. Um, what makes a good transition partner are, are really, I think, three things. Um, one is, is and first and foremost, is the talent. Um, you need to have technical capabilities, technical talent on the other other side, because the the software that we or hardware that we hand over, um, you know, it's going to continue to evolve. Uh, so you need to have talent that can continue to refine, iterate, you know, create the 2.0 um, after we after we transfer it. So talent is really essential. Um, then I think it's it's the tooling that the the partner has, um, whether that's you know DevSecOps environment. Um, if they have, um, you know, if they have commons or software capabilities um, on their side, you know, are they well equipped with the, the sort of tooling that they need to do the product development on an ongoing basis? Um, and then finally, it's, it's the infrastructure. Um, you know, what is their cloud environment? How are they thinking about security? Um, so I think we, we also think about the, the sort of uh, infrastructure of the of the partner, and in this case, you know, we feel very confident uh, AFRL has all of those things, and we'll be able to continue to refine uh, the the counter U.S. products that we're transferring. Final thought, Katie. In the cases where your partner might need capacity help in those one or all of those three areas, how much, if any, is it DDS's job to help that partner build that capacity so that that organization's equipped to take the handoff? Mm-hmm. We, we've certainly we've certainly done that, um, and I think some of it is advocacy. Um, you know, it might be a different part of the organization that handles hiring and uh, and talent scouting. So we might work with, uh, we might advocate to leadership, for example, that um, they need to make those resources available, or they might need to make that funding available. Um, but sometimes it, you know, sometimes it's, it's just laying that out as part of the transition plan. Um, you know, if you're going to take over this product, you need, you know, a dedicated product manager, two engineers, et cetera. And we might have to, to sort of lay that out. Um, so we, we play both a role in, in advocating for, um, for the sort of talent infrastructure and tooling that's needed. But we also make sure that um, the, the transition partner also understands what those are and, and can kind of budget and plan accordingly. Katie Olson of the Defense Digital Service, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having us. We appreciate it. You can read more about the technology handoff to the Air Force at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. You can subscribe to the Daily Scoop podcast everywhere you get your shows, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and many more. The Chief Information Officer at the National Science Foundation, Dorothy Aronson, on the show tomorrow. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.